Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Michaela James is a physical activity and child health researcher from Swansea University, specialising in promoting and advocating for the wants and needs of young people in relation to activity. Michaela is passionate about letting young people have their say about what matters affect them and has recently completed her doctorate. Promoting physical activity has been a big priority for Michaela from her role as mentor to young people, not in education, employment or training, with three premiership rugby clubs, to being a fitness instructor, CrossFit coach and part of the NERS programme. Her current role gives her the scope to make a real difference through her research and dissemination. So a very warm welcome, Dr. James. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. And we were very excited to come across your research because I have been uh, nudged by many schools to take a look at this issue of of participation in sport, but in particular around girls' uh, participation and some of the issues around that. And that's how you came to our attention. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, the school's physical activity is definitely a hot topic with us and how we can better you kind of promote physical activity in that setting is is something that, yeah, we're, we're really focused on. And especially coming out of lockdown, you know, the, the COVID is I think it's a bit of an elephant in the room, but how COVID has then affected physical activity and how schools then can help with that when they come back. So so, yeah, across primary and secondary level, really. Now, Michaela, for people listening, they may not know some of the most recent sort of data, which I've got in front of me, which is quite depressing in terms of adolescent girls, physical activity and involvement. So, for example, recent global data has shown that the prevalence of recommended levels of activity are less than 20 percent among adolescent girls. And it does seem to be that there is a slow decline in the participation among that age group. And and many researchers are talking about this as a big public health priority. What's your sort of take on that? Yeah, absolutely. So the research is showing that there is a steady decline in both boys and girls, but the steepest decline is within, within girls. And that drop off seems to be around about the ages of 13 to 14. So if you're living in the UK, that would be around about year seven, year eight going into year nine age group. So that's a real pivotal age for girls. And and looking at it, we're trying to find out and trying to pinpoint why that might be happening. And unfortunately, we speak to a lot of girls as part of the work that I do that say that physical activity in schools or PE in schools is just really kind of, a lot of it is quite damaging for the young girls' perceptions of activity. And they're kind of having quite negative connotations related to activity or physical activity as a result of that. So yeah, even when you speak to people, you know, 10, 20 years older than me, they always relate back to this age group saying, oh, I had a really horrific time with PE in school. And it's just such a shame that that's, you know, 
it's still a narrative that kind of feeds through the whole school system, really, and the whole age group, whether you're 20, whether you're 30, whether you're 40, it's always coming out that there's this kind of rhetoric around, oh, I had really negative experiences at that age group, so around about 13 to 14. And then a lot of girls are dropping out and then unfortunately not picking activity back up until probably a lot later in life when potentially the physical health and mental health benefits have been lost and now they're going to try and seek an activity that they really like but they've lost this huge time period where they could have been active but for whatever reason they've dropped off at that kind of school age then and as you say I mean there's a lot going on at home and homes all over the country and physical activity has been quite difficult and challenging and not as possible for some children you know compared to others so in terms of the PE I want to talk about us to go back to that point about PE and experiences of PE it's really challenging isn't it because it's very dependent that experience on facilities on quality of facilities on the sensitivity of staff to what's going on for young girls and how it feels to be in a particular you know PE kit or having to change I mean it's a very sensitive area isn't it yeah if you and I were to design sort of an optimal PE experience uh, what might it include what what were the things that we'd have to think about let's have a little brainstorm Okay, so so we spoke to teenagers as part of some of the research that I've done. And a lot of what they were saying is that they don't feel like they have autonomy in PE. They don't feel like they have a choice. This is like something that girls really draw out quite a lot, is that there's quite a rigid structure to PE in schools. So thinking of my experiences. So in the winter, you do football, you do netball, you do hockey, potentially. Then you have the winter term. And then coming into summer, you start doing athletics. And that seems to be the structure throughout your life. So as soon as you get into year seven, you have this experience where you know what sports are coming and it is sports. Unfortunately, a lot of the time that it is just sports that are given to kids. And they're saying that they don't actually have a say in whether they want to do these things or not, which is putting a lot of young people off, you know? So I think that's the first thing is asking young people what they actually want from a PE curriculum and what they want to do and what would excite them about a PE curriculum and then the second thing is like making it more fun so again from my experiences and talking to teenagers a lot of what they talk about is that it's a lot of skills and drills in PE spend a lot of time doing things like learning how to run in athletics spend a lot of time learning how to pass when actually that's not very fun and if you think about it in the UK our winters aren't the best winters. So if you're stood outside, it stood outside for an hour passing a ball back and forth. That's not very exciting. And you can kind of see why kids find that quite boring. So I think those are the two key points that I would, you know, really double down on is that whole idea of choice and autonomy with young people and then making it way more fun. Trying to do something different, really. I mean, the thing is, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, I'm not an expert on school budgets, but I know that some schools, you know, that, that they've been forced to limit the time spent on PE and they don't have the big facilities to, to kind of offer that variety and diversity in sport compared to maybe some independent schools. Yeah, so, you know, some schools are better suited to, to, to provision. So, for example, you know, if you live in a school, in a rural school, you've got a lot more green space than if you had, than if you were in a built up school. So in terms of that, you're already kind of at a bit of a loss with what you can provide. 
and yeah, it's, it's a difficult one with the school budgets because again, you don't know what schools, I'm not an expert either. You don't know what schools have access to. You don't know what they're being told they can spend money on and what they can't spend money on. But a lot of the time, what young people are suggesting are really low cost. Uh, yeah. They're not asking for a lot of stuff. They're just asking for things to be done slightly differently. So, you know, they just want opportunities to play really. And play doesn't have to cost that much. Play could be done with what you've got and it can be young person led they can decide the rules they can decide what they're doing but it doesn't have to I think a lot of times with young people when we say oh they're going to want something really expensive they're going to want us to build a swimming pool they're going to want us to build a facility when in reality actually a lot of what they want isn't isn't that much money really and I'm just thinking about some of the most fun aspects I remember at my you know quite impoverished primary school you know there was a wall so you could play hand handball you know there were skipping ropes you know so you could do you know there are some of these uh, pieces of equipment can be so fun to engage with and not that costly potentially absolutely so yeah I went I was quite lucky I went to a primary school and a secondary school that were in a rural communities there's a lot of green space but the amount of times that we used to just make up games that would require absolutely zero equipment but you know because we were given that opportunity to have like a child-led play we did get the most out of it with with what we had and yeah okay we had a field that we could do that on but I think a lot of the time we're a bit scared of that child-led kind of focus I think we're a bit scared especially as young people get older especially as we get into teenage years people are terrified of giving teenagers ownership of stuff like that um, <laughs> I don't know whether that's just because there is a stereotype of what teenagers would do if you said go do what you want but in reality I think that you would see some amazing things from physical activity if you gave them that autonomy and weren't so scared about giving them that autonomy as well I really love that point. It, uh, yesterday, I threw my boys into the garden and they ended up having a leaf fight and then pushing one another around in the trolley in the garden. So they definitely come up with things to do that at least make them mucky and they look like they're enjoying themselves. But I think your your main point is that it has to be fun. It has to. And I think, you know, you've mentioned this kind of thematic seasonal sport that schools get into rugby, hockey, you know, football, but actually there are hundreds of sport, archery, volleyball, lacrosse, swimming, cycling. I mean, it's endless, isn't it? It's absolutely endless. And, you know, I've, I've been, I've, I, I've been a coach in rugby. I've been a coach in football and netball. And, you know, you can break those sports down even further into even the, you, you can delve right down into being like, OK, this is a version of rugby that we're going to play. It doesn't look like rugby, but it's going to teach you all the skills that you're going to need to play rugby really well. So even though you're doing a sport, it can be broken down even further to make an activity that's accessible for all, even if they're not interested in that particular sport. Yeah, that's really, really nice as well. And I think it's I think one of the things I picked up from the research as well, in particular, again, with, with girls, that there might be a reticence to mess up, you know, to, to not be, they don't want, they, can't, they don't want to do it because they're not very good at it. Actually, rather than seeing it as, as it's fun to get stuck in and, and try and, and see how far you can get. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, there is a terrifying aspect to being like, what happens if I am bad at this, especially when you do get to 13, 14, you know, if you think of yourself as a 13, 14 year old, how scary it is in front of your peers to potentially fail. And, you know, the repercussions of that for your day. Yeah, it's, it's a really scary thought. But you know, it's, 
if you were given more freedom in terms of, you know, not being graded or not being, if you, if you know that you're learning a skill and that skill can be graded, it's a tick box. Yeah. Okay. They've learned that skill. They've not learned that skill. Then of course you're going to be terrified of, of failure. But if it was much more free in terms of, okay, this is what we're going to do today. It's much more unstructured than it being skills and drills. It's actually more games based, more games focused where you can learn, you can take those risks You don't have to take those risks. There's more of like a growth mindset approach to it as opposed to being like, you either pass or you fail. And if you're going to pass or fail, it'll be in front of your peers. And then moving that more towards, well, actually, you can just play with your friends. There's no judgment. Yeah, that's gorgeous. I love that. And the other worrying thing that I read in a, I think it was a study in the International Journal of Behavioral Nutrition and Physical Activity, quite a recent study, talking about girls were concerned about being too muscly and it's unlikely that they're concerned about developing muscles. So again, this relationship between body image and a reluctance to participate in sport, is that something that is echoed in other pieces of literature? Oh, it breaks my heart when you hear girls say that, because outside of what I do in research, I, I coach at a gym and, you know, I really think that girls should want to be strong and should want to look strong and for whatever reason there is a bit of a stereotype about girls getting too muscular and I think that's such a shame I think that is you I think girls are really limited by that stereotype how we overcome that stereotype is a really loaded question I don't know what the answer is I think it's definitely a big societal and a big cultural shift that is is quite big it's quite daunting to think about how you change a stereotype in that way it absolutely is yeah yeah it's about it's about uh, you know for parents listening you know it is about promoting the idea of what your body's capable of rather than what it looks like in parenting and also the idea of body gratitude which we've referred to in other podcasts making sure that they they see their bodies as amazing and find and sport and participation and it is really about exploring its capacity you know for what it can do absolutely and you look at you look at female athletes and and you think you know, if you look at people like Serena Williams, she she gave birth and then a few months later, she's back playing in Grand Slam matches. It's as a woman, you know, the capabilities of your body are absolutely insane. But for some reason, we're told that to achieve and want to achieve that is is not OK. And I think if we're talking about parents, if you're bringing up girls the biggest message, the biggest confidence builder I think you can do is just be like, think about how amazing you are. Think of how capable you can be with this body that you've got. Don't limit yourself by what one other person thinks, because if you're with the right people and you've got the right upbringing, then I think the possibilities of of what you can achieve from that are amazing. And if there are other people telling you that you do look too muscular, then maybe they're not the people for you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that is so true isn't it you know and as I always say to parents you know you have to teach your children that nobody including themselves should be allowed to criticize their bodies and absolutely, I think that's yeah. you know absolutely fundamental and I'm very interested as well in the something that I've picked up on and I'm not sure if it's echoed in the research literature is the kind of the distaste some some people have a distaste for competition so there's a real split in parenting for example some parents think 
sports day should not be competitive. I've met some girl, little girls who don't like the idea of competing. They don't want to win over their friend or make their friend feel bad. Whereas, you know, in my experience, the boys absolutely love being competitive and thrive (laughs) and it's welcomed. And I just wondered, you know, those are horrible sort of stereotypes to an extent, but what's, what does the research tell us? What's the truth of it? So our research shows that girls do not like competition. They don't thrive on it, particularly in a school setting. I mean, if they want to be competitive, the likelihood is, is that if you're a teenager, you're already in some level of competitive sport. So you've been playing sport for a while. By the time you've got to 13 to 14, you're already in a competitive environment. If you're 13 to 14 and you're not in in a competitive environment, the likelihood is is that you are not there because you do not like it. And then being told that you have to be competitive in school and that the only way to kind of be successful in PE is to be competitive, be on the team, rather than, you know, success shouldn't be measured by that, but success should be measured by, did you actually take part today? Did you actually do your PE lesson? As opposed to being like, okay, cool, which team are you going to go on? The first team, the second team, the third team? So I think that does really put a lot of girls off. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure from your peers. It's a lot of anxiety. It's a lot of pressure to put on yourself, coupled with all the other pressures in school. If you're not competitive already, you don't want to be forced to be competitive. On the flip side of that, it seems to not be something that boys draw out as much. Boys seem to, if they're going to make up their own games, they said to us that they do like to make it some sort of competitive level. If they're going to make them up, they will be competitive. They'll have two teams, you know, whereas with girls, it's much more inclusive. It's much more about doing stuff together as a group rather than a win or a loss mentality. I don't know why that is. I don't know why there is such a gendered kind of perception of that. But from our point of view with our research, it looks like the more competitive that you make it for girls at that pivotal age, the more likely they are to drop out and the less likely they are to engage with with PE, definitely in schools. And as you've mentioned, you know, it is like a, it's a very tumultuous time being 13, 14 as a girl. There's an awful lot going on. But of course, there's this extra ingredient of access to social media and their digital diets. And of course, having access and exposure to perfect bodies and curated images just at the time where that little identity is emerging and they're trying to come to terms with who they are is arguably very, very difficult. Yeah, I love the phrase digital diet, by the way. I I really like the idea that we're now looking at more as you consume that stuff as much as you consume food. I think it's a really nice way of looking at it. It makes a lot of sense in your head, I think, when you can when you refer to it as like a digital diet. But yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of pressure on girls. You know, if you if if you think I think it's easy as a woman to empathize with that because you went through it as well. You're 13 to 14, you know what it feels like. It's horrible in some aspects. There's a lot going on that's out of your control. You know, you you want to have more positive experiences rather than rather than negative and you want to be accepted by your friends and social media is is something that I think there is good in social media I really do think there is good you can follow accounts that give you loads of knowledge are really empowering and make you feel really good about yourself but for every one of those there is always going to be an account that doesn't do that unfortunately you do get a lot of people like influential people that support not necessarily very healthy behaviors and then young girls are buying into that but it's so hard to it's so hard to police it's so hard to to 
yeah, to police, really. It's, it's how do you stop that content being seen by certain people, really? But one of the things you've just mentioned earlier, which is so important for parents listening, is that the, there is a there's there's a world of amazing female athletes out there <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And they could be following their accounts because it's not the Serena Williams of this world aren't promoting dieting pills or ridiculous you know products that are really harmful for young people they're they're talking about their strength their next game their strategy you know what they're grateful for and so there are amazing role models and arguably fantastic accounts that young women can follow like women's rugby or women's world cup or i'm sure you follow some fantastic accounts <laughs> yeah i follow some really really good really good accounts there's a lot of good female crossfitters that are good to follow just because of the way that they approach kind of body image and being strong is is something that is really good to aspire to and the stuff that they can do is ridiculous and I think it's so inspiring sometimes to see women doing that stuff there's also some really good female rugby accounts there's an account called the perception agency where they talk about how they compare women's rugby and men's rugby and they talk about the ways that in which both are spoken about they do a lot of comparisons in the media and it just goes to highlight that even though we think that we're, we're taking leaps and bounds forwards in terms of men's and women's sport being on the same playing field, it goes to show that there's still so much work left to do. And if I think if parents can engage with that sort of content and that sort of account as well, bringing up children to not have those perceptions or bringing up children to speak in a way that isn't so dismissive of women's sport would, again, go a long way to contributing to that big cultural and societal shift that we need for that stereotype. And again, one of the big tips for parents is around what you're referring to, media literacy and and asking you, oh, that's, why are they dissing that particular sport? Or why are they speaking in that terms to that sports journalist? Or, you know, I'm always very interested in the way they treat different journalists in different sports because I follow some of the female sports journalists on Twitter. And sometimes, you know, certain fan groups are very dismissive of female participation in that area of sport. I know. I came across one the other week that was about women's rugby and, oh no, I think it was actually about women's football. And Sky News had put an article up about women's football on their Instagram and loads of men commented on it saying, I don't care about this. Why is this on my feed? Why is this on a Sky News channel? No one cares about this. And I was like, how is this still happening? Like, how are people, because you could just scroll past that on social media. It's not something you necessarily have to engage with. But there are still people that feel so angry about women participating in sports, in male-dominated sports, that they feel like they have to comment in this derogatory manner. And, you know, when you just think, I really thought we were getting somewhere with this. You know, women's rugby is on BBC Two now, which is amazing. And then you get on the flip side, you get this whole other kind of commenting and dismissive talk about it where you're like, how are perceptions not changing about this? But also there are some total trailblazers like and I'm not a big avid sports fan. I don't follow. But I do remember, you know, the, the woman who won the world darts and, you know, some of the, the <laughs> I'm thinking just this week, I was thinking about that fantastic 14 year old who's off to she's going to be. Britain's entry probably for breakdancing in the Olympic sport oh, in, wow. in 2024 like there are some you know astonishingly talented women but I think in domestic life in family life they need to be household names as much as you know the the footballers are the male footballers who get so much there's just such talking points in in 
British life, aren't they? Yeah, you almost want to make the female names just as much as a talking point as as their male counterparts, really. You know, why are we not talking about more Sarah Hunters and then comparing her with... Why are we not talking about our... The, comparing the male version to the female version, you know, why it's always vice versa. But yeah, getting those names into, into more household names would be amazing. What are you sort of looking at in your, like, what did you do your actual doctorate on, Michaela? And what were the main findings from that? So my doctorate is on a project that we ran at the university called the Active Project. So Active was co-produced by teenagers from the start. So we asked teenagers, what were the barriers to being active and what can we do to kind of overcome them? So they spoke about accessibility being the number one barrier. So things are too expensive. They're not local enough. They don't really consider teenagers when they plan for them. So we asked them how we can help overcome that. So eventually we developed an intervention that was kind of, it was, there was three elements to it. So There was a voucher scheme to overcome the element of cost. So we gave teenagers £20 a month for 12 months to spend on activity. And that could be bringing activities into their area or that could be accessing already existing ones. Then we had a support worker who was there to kind of facilitate that activity. So they could speak to the support worker and we could set up new activities. And then there was a peer mentoring scheme. So using their friends as kind of influencers and positive role models so that they could have those conversations with people they were really close to. So we ran that for 12 months and then we analysed how it worked and we spoke to teenagers about whether it was positive, whether it was negative, what could be done better. What we found is that teenagers access unstructured, fun and social activities with the vouchers. Not one of the vouchers that we gave to teenagers, and we gave the vouchers to around about 500 teenagers in the end, not one of those vouchers was spent on conventional sport. So they didn't use them to access football or rugby. They didn't use them to pay subs for any clubs. They only used them to access things like trampoline parks. Wow. To go to water parks, to do fun stuff that they could just do with their friends. Laser tag was a big one as well. Or they were buying equipment so that they could do stuff at home. So a few girls bought bought skateboards, you know, uh, gym memberships was another thing that young people bought. So that was interesting in itself. And then what we found was that when we did our kind of testing for it, we found that the teenagers got fitter when they were using the vouchers and they had access to the intervention. Their heart health got better, so their blood pressure reduced. It's really about the flexibility of choice. Like when you give them a choice, it's not that they don't want to do the physical activity, is it? Oh my God, you just hit the nail on the head. Yeah, no, it's not that they don't want to do it. It's just that they feel like they don't have a choice about what they do. They feel like they are pigeonholed into four four sports, essentially, that they can do at school or four or five, and that's their limit. Whereas actually in reality, there is, as we spoke about earlier, there is a whole load of activities that you could do, but teenagers feel like they just don't have the choice to do them. You're making me think about some sort of simple ideas, like potentially, and I'm sure schools do do this, but having a kind of an equipment library where young people can rent things out and bring them home. So if they're not comfortable doing the hula hooping or the skipping or, you know, weights at school, they can take sort of certain things home. So I think it's different, isn't it? Because you have to sort of do it in front of your peers at school and that can be the challenging bit as well. Yeah, I think that teenagers do like being able to do stuff with their friends, but they just feel like a lot of the time, especially at secondary school, in the the focus groups, they speak a lot about the fact that if they want to play football in the playground, as soon as they get a ball out, teachers come running over and place limitations on it. So 
you can't kick it here. Only year nine are allowed the ball today. Year 10 get their turn tomorrow. It's all very structured. So even just a kick about with your mates turns into this huge kind of here's loads of rules you have to stick to and that for teenagers is really demoralizing and a lot of the time they say that we're not causing any trouble they just are preempting trouble that's never going to happen they're already adults are already expecting something bad to happen and nine times out of ten nothing bad does happen but one instance that happened five years ago sticks in teachers minds and it's kind of ruined it for the next generation of kids that come through that school so it's not that they don't want to do all that they're scared of doing it in front of their peers I think a lot of time they feel like they're really limited in school by the opportunities to do that but I love the idea of being able to here's the equipment that schools have got and you can rent that out and take that home we've spoken a bit as a research team about the ideas of using schools utilizing schools a little bit better so we work quite closely with Play Wales and they talk a lot about how the school environment isn't utilized enough outside of school hours and that equipment library would be one really quick way of utilizing the school environment not necessarily on the grounds but utilizing what the school provision is so that they can kind of make a difference for activity levels outside of school now we haven't talked about the amazing and extraordinary and holistic benefits (laughs) of physical activity for i mean it is so long you know how you know the, the effects on mental health physical health but can you say a little bit about them michaela Yeah. So in terms of speaking about it as if you are a young person being active. So obviously there are the immediate benefits of, you know, body composition. So less likelihood of becoming overweight or obese, the heart health benefits. So stronger heart, lower blood pressure, you know, the risk of lower risk of non-communicable diseases. That's always a tongue twister for me. I'll just say (laughs) NCD from now on in. Um, so, you know, less likelihood of developing diabetes. And then if you start being active, the younger you're active, you carry those benefits. As long as you sustain that participation, you carry those benefits into later life as well. So if you can be active between the ages of zero and 20, the likelihood is, is that when you get to those kind of pivotal age around about 50 and 60, where those NCDs start coming into play a little bit, you're less likely of suffering from them. And then the mental health benefits are just huge. So, you know, if you've ever done any exercise, the feeling that you get afterwards just speaks for itself, really. So better well-being, better mental health. It's proved to reduce things like anxiety and depression. And then I think the thing that we often forget is also the benefits you get of socialization and the fact that a lot of the time you're active around people and with people and that is huge for a lot of people being able to be active in a community of like-minded individuals is often the benefits of that alone are just you know so significant for your own well-being I think lockdown would you agree Michaela the denial of a lot of these activities it's really brought home how important people didn't realize how important their walk was with their friends in the park or the the gym visit for them or or the ability to be at school and participating in all these lovely activities so I think are we with greater appreciation certainly at the end of 2020 for those things I think so yeah I think so when they announced as part of the restrictions that there was going to be an you could spend an hour a day doing activity I was like, well, why is this not more of a thing with the government? Like, Why are we not saying that, you know, for me being a physical activity researcher and someone that's so passionate about being active, it takes a global pandemic for the government to really push that message about being active for an hour a day. And also the way that they, then the government made it sound so easy as in, oh, you just step outside your front door and you're being active. And I was like, 
how have we not said this before? Because a lot of people think that being active means that you have to have a gym membership, that you have to be part of a sports club, when in reality, it's really not. You know, you can be active just by walking five minutes down the road and back. That's 10 minutes of activity that you've done. I was watching someone the other day who was telling me, well, they were telling me they were doing boxing on Zoom from their living room and really worked up a sweat. Yeah. Um, so that was absolutely, I mean, I think we have a lot to thank Zoom for over the pandemic. I think Zoom has opened up so many possibilities for activity. Our uh, imaginations about what's possible and really seeing sport as much more than traditional sports, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think sometimes I speak at conferences and people think that I've got some sort of hate campaign against sport and I absolutely do not. I love sport. I love watching sport. I love playing sport, but I acknowledge that sport isn't for everyone. You know, I think that sport as a vehicle to bring communities together, to bring people together and to get people more active is incredible. I'm not against sport, but I think we need to acknowledge more and more now that actually sport isn't for everyone there are huge groups of people that don't engage with sport but also are massively put off with the culture that comes with sport and you know they're put off by the rules the regulations the fact that you have to be good there's no kind of practice you almost are expected just to be good at a sport rather than having to practice at it and I think that's something that you know is instilled from you in school a lot of the time is this whole idea of you know, that marker of success is being good at sport in PE. And if you're not, you're not good at PE. And that kind of puts you, you, you then you drop out of PE, you don't engage with it. And that means that you lose a lot of time being active. Whereas if it was, it's not necessarily about sport, there are other forms of activity. Then I think that more people would end up being active and carrying that on through school and then outside of school then as well. But yeah, I think sport is amazing for some people. It doesn't work for others. But at the same time, everyone should be doing physical activity. And that's your main point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everyone should be doing something. Moving to sort of the domestic sphere, which I'm interested in, and parenting, just to sort of throw some things at you that I've sort of been telling parents for quite a while is is we have to be very careful what we're modeling as parents. And I think, unfortunately, the research seems to indicate that mothers... And when we're talking about girls' participation in sport, have a big role to play. And uh, in terms of the language we use to describe our own bodies, how we model our participation in sport or, you know, the messaging that comes from mothers seems to be quite important. Yeah, I think it seems pretty kind of straightforward that if you are a girl, your immediate role model, your closest role model to you is always going to be your mother. And if your mum isn't necessarily as active, then maybe you're going to follow that trend. If you're a parent that's completely disengaged with activity, you kind of need to acknowledge how that's going to impact. If you're a really sedentary family, how that's going to impact on your child's perceptions of activity. If you spend a lot of time at home, then that's going to be the norm for your child. You know, your child is going to think that being sedentary is the norm and and that's how they should live their life. When in reality, you know, we should be active, we should be up. And it's hard to kind of, you don't want to blame parents at all. And that's not what I'm saying. But there is some kind of responsibility, we have to be like, well, actually, 
the biggest compliment I've got in my life is that my child sees me as a role model. And if I want my child to be healthy, if I want my child to move more, then that means that sometimes I'm going to have to move more, especially at primary school when kids don't necessarily have the means to do things by themselves. I think there is kind of a level of ownership you have to take on if you're not active, your child's not going to be active or at least, you know, be the person that encourages them to be active. If you don't want to be active, that's fine, but be encouraging. And going back to those conversations that we had earlier, you know, the idea of talking about sport and physical activity in a really positive way, even just little things like that, small changes that you can make to how you speak about things would make a whole world of difference. And also the easy thing for parents to do is take an interest in the dialogue about female sport in the home and making sure we pay attention to some great sporting achievements on the news by female athletes. And and I'm a big fan of families really promoting role models that might be in their own family as well to, to their children. So I think it's about who are we going to hold on that pedestal and why? So every woman on the planet looks at Serena Williams and thinks, I have not, I'm, I'm, I have nothing to complain about. She had a baby, went back to the courts, like, come on. You know, she's I an know. inspiration for all of us, isn't she? Absolutely. Yeah, and being able to, there's just a shame that female athletes and female sports people are not representing the media as strongly as male athletes are but being able to find those new stories and hold on to them and then being able to tell them to your children or being able to have some sort of discussion even the discussion about why girls sport isn't featured as much as boys sports on the media is a big conversation to be having with the children that awareness that you know there is something in the media that about it, the underreporting of it, and the the not the lack of acknowledgement at times there have been about women's participation in sport. But because of that, that doesn't mean it needs to deter young girls from being active. In fact, let's make young girls want to be the the generation that changes that narrative. So if we can have those conversations, maybe we're going to end up raising a generation of girls that are like, nah, I'm gonna be on the news. I this is me, I'm gonna change this. And you know what? It's such a shame. There's so much that advertisers can do in this regard, you know. But just based on, did you see the Ireland rugby kit promotion about this? No. So they used the male rugby team as the models for the kit. They used, <laughs> and then they used female models, not female rugby players, to advertise the women's kit. And there was absolute uproar because they were like, well, why do the men get to be the models, but the women players don't get to be the models? So they've changed their campaign now, thankfully. Yeah, that whole conversation, that whole dialogue was so interesting to see unfold on on social media. These are very interesting debates, again, to have in schools. So I think there's a lot of material out there to, you know, it's very inspiring talking to you because there's a lot of work to be done. But the, the, the key thing is that, you know, women are rocking the world of sport. It's just we need greater exposure and we need to have more dialogue. And, and we don't want to we don't want to tolerate the things that are not good in this space, really. Absolutely. I think there is as much as there is a lot of work still to be done. I don't think that that work is a huge mountain to climb. I think it's all about small changes that people can make, small conversations that people can have that will eventually kind of 
inspire other people to do things or to to create some sort of change or some sort of movement that will eventually lead to a whole generation of girls and not just girls but a whole generation of young people that are like actually we want to be listened to in terms of what we do for activity we're fed up of the same thing being done in schools we want some change here and will also lead to potentially a greater focus of women's sport in the media because there will be a lot of women that will be brought up in this day and age that know that they can't be silenced and they will fight to then be have that same kind of level of exposure as as male sport does so I think even though it does sound like we have a big challenge I think the reality of what we can do in the face of that challenge is actually not as daunting as you think and you know what these female sports people I really like to see them as role models for resilience in multiple ways so you know what do they do when they mess up when they fail when they lose a match you know they come back they try harder they pick themselves up so there's a lot to talk about in general in terms of resilience as well absolutely I think and resilience is something that they're promoting a lot in schools at the moment and the idea of growth mindset so being able to I think if you can identify with someone that has got strong resilience and see how that person deals with facing failures as big or as small as they might seem, you know, you get a real kind of feel for, okay, this this is how I overcome that. This is how I deal with it. And hearing stories about how people deal with things like that. I think activity and I think sport is a really good and healthy way to have risks and to fail because it's really easy to fix that. It's a really easy like learning curve in terms of, you know, if you fail at something in sport or in physical activity, you just keep practicing and then eventually you can do it. And I think that teaches resilience, that teaches, you know, practice, that teaches all these really good kind of life lessons that you can take into other aspects. But yeah, I think especially because resilience is so topical in, in some schools, you know, if a lot of your kids aren't engaging with sport, I think you're missing out on a big opportunity to teach resilience in that way. Well, listen, Michaela, tell us what you're working on at the moment and what we can look forward to reading or seeing or what research I can bring to people's attention in the near future. So at the moment, we're kind of reacting to a lot of stuff that's happened with COVID and a lot of stuff that happened with lockdown. So I'm currently working on some data and some analysis in terms of how primary school children got on in lockdown and what the impacts that were on their physical activity, their sedentary behavior and their mental health and well-being. So doing a bit on that. Also doing a lot more on how local environment impacts physical activity. So how does whatever it looks like for you stepping outside your door, how does that impact your physical activity, especially with lockdown, having a look at how garden size might have impacted how much physical activity you did and how much green space you've got near you. And then looking then to progress active a bit more. So the projects that I did for my PhD, we're looking to get that funded again. And we're looking at the ways that we can help advocate and empower teenagers even more. So we did some work, but this is now time to like double down on really empowering and really getting their voices heard. Brilliant. Well, I want to hear the results of all those fascinating <laughs> studies and so I can tell all my parents about it. So listen, thank you so much. I'm inspired after listening to oh, you. It's <laughs> <laughs> here like a big hypocrite and not doing anything. So listen, um, I'm inspired by what you're doing. Thank you for your amazing research in such a dynamic and important field and all the very best. Oh, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. 
This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.